So if I can trans- transport you back to the year 1996, Danielle and I are moving from Boone, North Carolina to Richmond so I can begin seminary. And that's a long drive. And so you kind of have this one shot. We're going to go down here for the weekend. We're going to register for classes. We're going to find where we're going to live. We're going to put a deposit down on a place. We're going to figure out how to get the power turned on, all those kind of things. And so we go there, and there's supposed to be like this kind of concierge guy at the seminary, and he's going to help you find where you need to go and tell you about places in town and tell you, hey, don't move there. There's gang activity or don't move here. You know, there's drive-by shootings. And it turned out he was a complete moron. So we kind of braided it down. You know, we didn't have a lot of time. We kind of get there, you know, middle of the day because it's a very long drive, and we're looking at these different places. And as we get there, we realize that of what we could afford because you have to get the first month's rent and the last month's rent, right? And this big deposit and all this kind of, we didn't have that kind of money. So there was two places that were fairly nice that required some kind of a mediary between not all this money and not no money come live with the roaches. And so they were called Marblehead and London Town. And so we said, hey, listen, we've narrowed it down to these two places. We don't know anything about Richmond. We've never been here. We've never driven out of these places. We've just driven by them, looked around. We couldn't really tell. It was a rainy day. Which one should we go to? Oh, definitely don't go to Marblehead. There are drug deals going down there. It is a dangerous place. I hear nothing but bad things about that. So we went to London Town and put our deposit down and paid. Not knowing that the police called it Lock and Load Town, not London Town. While we were there, our building caught fire. Cars were broken into gunshots going down it was the kind of place where you come home on uh, like just a monday afternoon at, you know one in the afternoon and everyone's out on their front stoop drinking beer and smoking marijuana and i just wanted to go back and grab that guy and be like mm, and jesus stopped me but anyway but it just we had a miserable year and we had bad counsel and bad leading and bad teaching and there were consequences for us there were consequences for us. And so when Jesus here is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't wrap it up with this like, and I just love you guys, and it's the best, and grace conquers all. Okay, bye. You know, he ends with some hard sayings. Because what you got to remember is as he ends this text, true discipleship is what's at stake. True discipleship. Not people that just profess with their mouths, but not with their lives. But the truth that there is a narrow way to life, and few find it. And so he wants to expound on that and say, let's talk about why that is and what are the consequences. And then there's a day of judgment that's coming. So these are hard sayings that he ends up with. But let's look at the text. If you have your text out, you turn your Bible to Matthew 7, look at verses 13 and 14. And again, we, we, we ended on verses 13 and 14 this week, so I'll just briefly touch on them. But verses 13 and 14 are where Jesus hinges this entire thing on. Listen. There is a hard way, and it is narrow, and few find it. But even though it is hard and narrow, it is the actual true way, and it is the way that leads to life. And there is a broad way, and it is easy, and many find it. But as you all sang in traditional service last week, it is literally the highway to hell. And so these, these things that he's talking about, he says, listen, just because the way is easy doesn't mean it's good. That's the way that leads to death. And so as we jump right in here, we jump into verse 15, which is kind of where we start the new teaching this week. Verse 15 actually has its basis in Jesus referring back to Jeremiah 6.13 and then in Ezekiel Ezekiel 13. And he's talking about it because in those verses, the Lord is calling through his prophet to his people and he's saying, listen, 
You love to deceive one another with your false teachings. You love to have false teaching and false prophets come and tickle the ears of the people, my people, and tell them the things that they want to hear so that they can be taken advantage of, so that they can be killed, so that you can capitalize on your lies and your false teaching to them. And so he refers back to that. And we've got to remember as he, as he begins in verse 15, false prophets and false teaching typically offer an easier alternative than the gospel. And you kind of say, how is it easier than surrendering to the one that gave his life for me, the one that did it all? You'll, you'll figure out in our world that people will try anything other than surrendering to God. And so the problem with false teaching, here in verse 15, we would, we would kind of flesh this out. It's, it looks like a fruit bush. You know, to the, to the untrained eye, this kind of bush and this kind of bush might look identical if there's not fruit on them, if it's the part where it's not fruit-bearing season. But he says, you know, the teaching is going to sound okay. It might sound plausible, but it is going to practically deceive those who are not anchored in the truth. And so the anchored in the truth goes all the way back to the, to the end, all the way forward to the end of this text where we're talking about the house that is rooted on the rock that is built down onto it. And so in verses 16, 17, and 18, Jesus doesn't give you a philosophical idea about what these things are. He gives you a visual illustration that is actually an ethical test to discern false teachers and false prophets. And he says, listen, the ethical test, the ethical test for people and prophecy and their teaching is that what is professed must be seen in their practice which basically their words must match their deeds. And so again, this fruit idea, like I said at the beginning of the service, goes back to Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. And the Lord begins to talk about this vineyard that he planted that was supposed to yield sweet fruit, but instead it yielded bitter, awful grapes. And he says, because of that, you're going to be torn down. These fruit trees are supposed to bear good fruit, but you are not. You're false. You're full of false teaching. You're full of false prophecy. And the other part of this, when we think about it, when you accept the gospel, and this is, we would refer to this in John chapter three, you are born again. So yes, God is absolutely in the process of turning thorn bushes into beautiful cherry trees. He's absolutely in the process of turning thistles into amazing peach trees. He does that. That's what being born again is. But the point is, when the gospel takes a hold of you, there's got to be a radical change in you. There's a radical change. That's the thistle to, thistle to fruit tree. But also, we would say, I once was dead, but now I'm alive. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I can see. Those are all radical changes. And those are things that the gospel does. But if a thistle tree continues to be a thistle tree throughout, it cannot claim that it has been changed by the gospel and therefore whatever it teaches is false. And so he says to, then, then, then again, you kind of wrap up verse 18 and I would give you kind of the underlying idea is that at the root of all false teaching is that the gospel is not enough. At the root of all false teaching is the falsehood that the gospel is just not enough. That Jesus loves us so much that when we were dead in our sins, the Father gave his son to die for us, that when we would put our faith in him and what he has done, because he died and rose again, and that means that God counted and, and absolutely accepted the check and the payment for our unrighteousness with his righteousness. We look in there and what, what Paul would say in, um, in Corinthians, he became sin who knew no sin, that we would become his righteousness. And we just put our faith in that and believe and surrender to it. That's the gospel. Obviously, we confess our sin and we turn from it. But some people are going to say, that's not enough. I need something else. I need something different. 
So in verses 19 through 20, there, this, is a, this capitalizes in something that C.S. Lewis tries to grab on in the book called That Hideous Strength. And he says, all of history is moving to a finite point. All of history is narrowing down to a time where there will come a day of judgment. And so Jesus comes and he jumps right into this. And this is one of these kind of things where you go, this doesn't sound like my sweet Jesus. Yes, this sounds like the Lion of Judah, does it not? It's all coming down to a narrowing. And he's seeing a final day of judgment is coming. And a mere profession of the lips of my name is not enough. John the Baptist in Matthew 3.10 calls out the Pharisees and some of the teachers because they were coming. And he was like, who warns you to come? Who warns you to come? You beware. You don't just stand there and profess with your lips. Show with your lives that you have turned from your sin, that you're following God. Because a mere profession of the lips is not enough. Your actions are going to show that there has been transformation in you. And so in verse 21, excuse me, that was 19 and 20. So in verse 21, we get this continuation of it. But now Jesus gets even more explicit. He gets even more explicit. And he simply says, hey, listen, you people, though you know the right vocabulary, you know the right vocabulary. Guys, it's hilarious to listen to Christians pray with each other. We say things that are nowhere in the Bible. Like in the Bible, just only appears when it's talking about just. But when we pray, we say just every word. Jesus, if you would just do this because we just need you, you're just so good, just, you know. And when we say things like hedge of protection, not in the Bible. I don't know where, I don't know, what is that hedge made out of either? You know, is it like a variegated evergreen? I don't even know. But he says, listen, you might know the vocabulary. You might even say Lord. You might know religious practices. You can go through the motions. You might even have some good moral deeds that you have. But listen, those things betray your actual posture of surrender to me, your profession. And so we get again, he comes into verse 22 and he says, there is a narrowing and it's coming down to a specific point and there's going to be a day of judgment. And he says this, no religious act is a substitute for true surrender to my lordship and true discipleship. And if you want to go, man, this is harsh. What does this look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like Judas. It looks like Judas casting out demons, healing people, teaching people, being with the Messiah all the time, never fully surrendering to him. The gospel wasn't enough. The gospel wasn't enough. At the end of it, when he didn't act like he wanted him to, when, when Jesus didn't act like Jesus, Judas wanted him to, what did he do? He seeks out the religious leaders and says, listen, how much would you give me to turn over? It's very possible. And so when we get to verse 23, notice in verse 23, this is the incredible part where if you and I ever get into conversations with people where people say, well, Jesus nowhere claimed to be God. Jesus nowhere claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus nowhere claimed to be the Son of God. And first of all, they're so off because there's so many places. And the book of John is full of I am. But don't miss this in this verse right here in verse 23. Notice that Jesus does not say, and one day God the Father will judge. What does he say? And one day I will judge. Don't miss that. It gives me goosebumps. I'm just kind of like, the gravity of what he's saying here. One day I will sit in judgment. And so you can see when you get to the end of this text that the people are going, whoa, that guy, he's teaching not like the prophets and the people of this time are. But he says, I am identifying myself as the judge. And listen, he's going to say, listen, where you failed the criteria in which were you failed was not your deeds and it was not the words you said and it was not, you know, the practices that you did. Where you failed was in relationship. 
You had no relationship with me because what does he say? Depart from me, I knew you not. Not depart from me, you didn't do good things. Not depart from me, you didn't know the right vocabulary. Not depart from me, you didn't know the hokey pokey that we do in church every Sunday with a stand up, sit down, read this, read that, whatever. You might have known all that, but you had no relationship. You never surrendered to me as Lord and said, you are my Lord and you live that way. You know, I could call Danielle my wife all the time, but if I sleep around and don't spend the night with her and leave, she's in, pra- in, in all intents and purposes not my wife because I am not living in a way that shows and demonstrates the covenant that I have with her. And so that's what he's saying. And so we get to verses 24 and 27. He's going to end this with a parable. And Jesus does this in such a beautiful fashion. He's like, listen, I want to show you this before you think it's all about things you can do because as Bob's going to explain to you, you're going to get to the end of this and go, well, I'm messed up. I, I, I say, Lord, Lord, all the time to you, Jesus, and I don't do what you say. I, is that me? Am I that? And, and he's going to say, hey, hang on, hang on. We've got to remember that we're reading this knowing the cross and the resurrection. They're listening to this going, well, dang. But he gives this analogy and he says, listen, I want to show you a parable that is going to illustrate obedience, but it's going to more illustrate grace. And if you're tuning into it and listening, I want you to hear it. True and false discipleship, and those are represented by the two different houses, on the rock, not on the rock. They will appear the same on the outside. The person, they have the same vocabulary. They may even do the same things. They might even know the same religious practices. But the difference is who is anchored on the rock, and that's the grace part. You see, the person that's built on the sand is trusting in their own works to do it. My own works will be able to stand the time on the day of judgment. The person who builds the house on the rock says, my own works will not. I need someone to save me. I need someone immovable, someone powerful, someone who has conquered death because I know that I am fallible. I know I can't do it. And to jump ahead and to oversimplify the Lord, Lord part where we talk about this, well, who are the Lord, Lord people that aren't going to get in? I want to tell you this, the Lord, Lord people that are the true disciples are when the father turns to them and says, why should I let you in heaven? And you go, not because of anything I did but because of what your son did. I didn't do anything. Your son did it all. And so he wraps up and he says, this solid rock, it is because of grace that you are saved. And so because of grace you are saved, because of grace you then obey. You don't obey to get grace because you've been given grace. You obey because you've been given grace. You surrender. And then I love 28 and 29. 28 and 29 are the people's shock at what they just heard. Because if you could go back, what they're saying is, it seems like every time we hear other people teach, they're quoting, well, so-and-so said, and so-and-so said, and the Rabbi Hillel said this, and the Rabbi Gamaliel said this, and in this teaching, and in the Talmud here, and Jesus doesn't say that. He says, I, let me tell you, I am this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the judge. And they're blown away. They've never heard anyone teach with such authority. And if you think about it, the creator the judge and the redeemer are all here explaining to them the way of life. So it's no wonder that they're blown away. So Bob's going to take this and give you some great, incredible, practical uses of this text. Sometimes I'm not sure which major college football uh, or basketball team I pull for, but today it's Clemson. So you're welcome. Um, for a number of different reasons, but my, my buddy Todd Bird uh, back there got me a Clemson tie. So I've got signed by Coach Dabo Swinney here. It says, Pastor Bob, all in from Dabo. 
So if you don't know who Dabo is and you don't know who Clemson is and you don't know their coach or whatever, I mean, they just won the national championship for the second time in three years. And so when Todd put together a group of uh, folks to go hear Dabo on Thursday night, we went. So I got my Clemson, uh, you know, water here as well. I'm good. I'm a big Clemson guy today. A lot of things I like about uh, Coach Dabo. And, you know, you never really know uh, who a public figure is behind the scenes, but from everything I've heard and seen and what I heard the other night, the man's the real deal in terms of following Jesus and in terms of being committed to his family and his life behind the scenes. And for somebody with such a public uh, place, that's really important. And when you talk about someone who, you know, models what it means to follow Jesus in the way that Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount, at least what I can see, it sounds like Dabo is one of those guys. And so when he speaks, you, you get the typical sort of one-liners you might expect from a coach like... Um, with Jesus, we're all first team. We're all five stars. Uh, greatness isn't your destiny, it's your decision. And uh, one of the ones that I loved the most was the key to coaching is love. And uh, he talks about how he, he gets his players together during the beginning of their training, and he picks up a football. Not that you need to know what a football looks like, but this is it. And this is Caleb's football, so... Uh, Caleb loaned me his football this morning, and uh, so what the coach says is he, he gets his players together, and he'll get the biggest, toughest lineman, and he'll bring him up in front of the whole team, and he'll put the football down on the floor. I'm not going to do this, by the way, and he says, now stand on the football, and uh, so I don't know if you'd like to try that at some point. I'm not doing it here because I value my neck, but... You know, so after, uh, you know, a few minutes of uh, craziness when this guy's trying to show that he's really coordinated and he's tough, then uh, the coach says to his team, that's what your life will be like if football is your foundation. What you really like from a national championship winning football coach, like I'm not teaching you football, I'm teaching you life. And uh, so that's his passion when it comes to his players. And Coach Dabo also offered us a number of different insights that really sound a lot sort of Sermon on the Mountish the other night because they're just basic, simple stuff, reminders that we all need, but they also get you striving toward, <clears throat> in a sense, an impossible vision that's at the same time like down to earth and the next thing. When you think about it, there are 12,000 Division one football players, and every single one of them starts the season going like we're going for the national championship. I mean, why else would you play? Like, we're going to win. I mean, that's their goal. They may, and, and you say, well, that's impossible for most of them. There will only be a, one team that will win, and only a handful of those will be recognized, you know, publicly for their glorious contribution to the team. But every single one of them is going for, I'm going to be the most disciplined that I can to a, a strive for that impossible dream. And yet at the same time, all I can do is the next thing, the next play the next step. And that's where I see Jesus ending this Sermon on the Mount. So he, he's given you this vision of very impossible behaviors. I mean, who can do all of this stuff that Jesus says to do? Uh, rejoice when you're insulted. Like, how are you doing with that? Right? Don't be angry. Turn the other cheek. Don't go to court when people sue you. Like, just give them what they add. Give them double what they ask. Give them everything. Forgive anyone who sins against you. Don't lay up for, your treasure, for yourselves treasures on earth. How are you doing with that? 
Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about anything, ever, about tomorrow. Just, just focus on today. Stop judging others. And in case you missed the impossibility of it, he says, be perfect. As your heavenly father is perfect. So you got it right? These are impossible ideals. And yet, as Jesus comes down to the end of the sermon, he gives you what I would call the deliverables. Like, what, what's, what's doable here? What can you actually do? What can you take away from this sermon? And so what intrigues me is that, as Pastor Paul said, this, these are hard sayings. These are difficult, challenging words. But what Jesus does is, in the context of those, really only gives you three sort of directives. What do I want you to do about it? So let, let me point them out to you. The first one is in verse 13. And in verse 13, uh, Jesus is, is talking about the narrow way that leads to life and the wide road that leads to destruction. And yes, and you start thinking about heaven and hell and who's going there. And Jesus says, let me just tell you the, the one thing that I want you to focus on. You choose the narrow gate. That's your job. Like you're not, It's not your job to figure out who else is in or out or how, you know, who's on the wide road or whatever or what percentage of people are going to heaven or whatever. I want you, I, this is to you, I want you to choose the narrow gate. That's your deliverable. That's, that's, your, that's your centering command. That's what you do with this. And you want to say, well, Lord, well, what about so-and-so? Like they're getting by with so much and I can't do all that stuff. Or what about people who have never heard? Or what about people who are moral? And he's going like, uh, you know, in, in the, the end of the Gospel of John, uh, Peter is having a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus says, when you get old and die, you're going to have um, an end that is going to be suffering, involuntary suffering. And Peter looks at John and he says, well, what about him? And Jesus says, well, what's that to you? You let me handle him. I'm telling you. You follow me. And that's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew. That, what do you want to do with this? It's not your job to figure out everybody who's in or out. It's your job to make sure you choose the narrow way and stay on that narrow way. So keep choosing your focus on the narrow way. Second command that Jesus gives in this text is in verse 15. This, this begins a whole section about the false prophets and the part where Jesus says, by your fruit you will know them. And then he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but only those uh, who do the will of my Father in heaven is all part of this false prophet section. And again, Jesus puts your focus on the judgment. He puts your focus on, on uh, you know, th- that he's the one who's going to be a judge, as Pastor Paul said. That's very important. But there's just one command in this whole section of nine verses. Watch out for false prophets. So what Jesus is saying is keep choosing your influencers. So keep choosing your focus, choose the narrow way, and now keep choosing your influencers. So you're not, it's you're not your job to figure out who's in and who's out. It is your job to discern who are the people that I'm going to listen to? Who are the people who are going to guide me? Who are the people with integrity and consistency and faithfulness to what they say they believe? That's your job. So be careful who you read who you watch, who you listen to, who shapes your spiritual life, and make sure they are people with lives that are consistent, all right? Again, it's not your job to figure out 
who else is in or out. It is your job to, to make sure that you keep choosing with discernment the people who influence your spiritual life. That's the deal. So you look for people who do have that uh, faithfulness and integrity and consistency before the Lord. And then finally, his command starting in verse 24 is sort of implied here. And this is where he gets to you, okay? And he says um, about this you know, whole story about the wise man and the foolish man and building and so forth. Uh, he says, I want you to hear these words of mine and put them into practice. So, again, his point is, let me give you some focus here. You keep choosing obedience. The story is very familiar, but don't miss its bottom line point. You be one who listens to all these words of mine and puts them into practice. So, again, we come back to the question, like, how can we do all of that? This is impossible. You've set up, set up all these impossible ideals. I love the quote I put in your bulletin on the left-hand side at the top. A man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what is heaven for? So the point is, when you get to heaven, like you will finally uh, reach what you've been grasping for, but along the line, it's good for you to be always striving for that ideal. So you keep choosing obedience. And so you get to the end of this sermon and you say, where's the grace? Like, isn't Jesus all about, you know, we're all sinners and we fall short and he forgives us. Instead, you got one part of the sermon after another that is about these ideals and keep doing this and don't do that. Where's the grace in the Sermon on the Mount? And this is why about uh, Tuesday of this week, I said to my staff, we said we were ending with verse 27. We can't end with verse 27. So the sermon ends with verse 27. And then we get Matthew's commentary on the sermon, which is verses 28 and 29. And Pastor Paul mentioned this, but verses 28 and 29 is where the crowds were amazed because of Jesus' authority. So Matthew now is setting us up for the rest of his gospel. This is uh, one of the first times he uses the word amazed, but it's a theme all the way through his gospel. And later on in the gospel, he's going to tell us that the people are over and over again amazed by him. So Uh, In chapter 8, he calms the storm, and they're amazed and say, what kind of man is this? And a mute man speaks after the demon is cast out of him in chapter 9, and the crowd says, nothing like this has been seen in Israel, and they're amazed. And then in chapter 13, he returns to his hometown, and the people are amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? So what happens at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew says, I'm not done yet. I'm setting you up for the rest of the story, and the rest of the story is include not, not only his teachings, but his miracles, and ultimately it's going to lead to his death and his resurrection and to his great commission to go into all the world and tell and make disciples of all the nations. So all Matthew is doing here at the end of this sermon is he's wanting you to be amazed by Jesus so you'll keep reading. Because the grace in the Sermon on the Mount is the bridge over to the rest of the gospel. This is going to be gospel. This is going to be good news. But right now, I just want you to know that the point of all this that he said is not what Jesus said. It's who Jesus is. Because ultimately, your salvation is going to be in the person of this one who amazed the crowd based on his authority. And Matthew will unfold all of that to you as he continues to give his gospel. So again, the last deliverable here is just keep focusing on Jesus. So we finished our our brief uh, series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And before that, if you remember back in January, we started with the Apostles' Creed, God the Father, the first section, 
But we only had a couple sermons on that, and we told you we were taking a break. Next Sunday, we get right back there again, and we go to the second part of the Apostles' Creed, which is Jesus. So in the same way that the Sermon on the Mount sets you up for the rest of the gospel, and who is Jesus, and where's the grace, our preaching on the Sermon on the Mount is to set you up for, I believe, in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, our Lord. And that's where we'll unfold these in the weeks to come. And believe me, we will find all the grace we need. So stay tuned. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the wonder and mystery of the Word of God. And thank you for the times that it humbles us. Thank you for the awareness of judgment, the terrifying awareness of judgment. But thank you for the hope and promise of grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, with, uh, with feeling as we do at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I can never, ever achieve all of that. Thank you for the one who makes it possible for us. Draw us into his presence all through the Lenten season and into Easter and beyond that we might know Jesus, follow him, love him, trust him, and proclaim him fully with our words as well as our actions. We ask in his name. Amen. I shifted the usual order of service just a little bit. I want to sing the hymn before we have communion because I think it's a good transition. A lot of times we sort of rush into communion. We're looking at our watches at the end of the service. And, you know, uh, we can't ever just come to this table carelessly. Uh, We have to come with intentionality. And there's a Um, there's a sense in which every time we come, it needs to come with self-examination. And as we we come before the table of the Lord, we we do want to say, Lord, I've, I've pondered this great sermon, and I do fall so far short. And it's because of that awareness, not excuses, not defensiveness, but owning my sin that I need this table and that I come to you with that perspective. So this hymn was written by a Quaker who was also an abolitionist in the 19th century. And he had come across this poem about a particular hallucinogenic beverage uh, by the Indo-Iranians who, like, you know, thought their religious thing was to basically get wasted. And he said, how foolish we are. And he writes this hymn as a response to all of the foolish ways we try to redeem and give meaning to our lives. And he says, dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways. Whatever foolish ways you have to bring before him today, do that as we sing this hymn quietly and reverently. uh, And then we will share together in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper.